Well, today we are wrapping up a series we've been doing here at Exponential called The Games People Play. Don't worry if you haven't been here for the rest of the series. Each message has sort of been a standalone. But what we've been basically doing is taking a look at how oftentimes board games reflect our lives. And today we're going to look at the, the game of chess. How many of you ever played chess before? All right. Okay, how many of you attempted to play chess before, but you're not even actually sure if you were playing chess? Yeah, that, that's how I sort of am with it. I understand it basically, but not quite sure about the whole thing. The, the illustration I'm going to use with why chess relates to our life won't really make sense until the very end of the message, so just sort of stick with me here this morning. You know, death has become big business, hasn't it? What I mean by that is a lot of money changes hands any time that somebody dies. I recently read something that said that uh, this coffin manufacturer was very hopeful about the future, and the reason that he said that was baby boomers now, which is the largest generation, are getting older and older and older, and they're dying off at more frequent rates, and so he was really excited about the sales that he was going to get because of all the, the coffins. Here's the deal with baby boomers. Baby boomers, how many are baby boomers? All right, some of you are baby boomers. The, the, the problem with you baby boomers is this, sorry to say it, you are a very me-centered generation, very consumeristic generation, and so what has happened is you want to go out in style. And so the, the big trend right now is this thing called designer caskets. You can spend up to $20,000 for your own designer casket. You can get them in all different sorts of varieties. They have like uh, team caskets. So like your, your favorite sports team, Walt, you're here today. I see you over there. I know you're a big Penn State fan. I don't hold that against you, but Walt could get his very own Penn State casket if he wanted to. Any NASCAR fans here today? Anybody like NASCAR? They now have NASCAR-themed caskets. You can get it with like the, the colors of your favorite team and the number on it and everything, and it's just, just ridiculous. I, I forgot to mention this uh, when I was talking about the team caskets. Ohio State, a couple years ago, they are actually selling these at their homecoming game like out in the parking lot while people were tailgating, they had them out there. I guess when they say homecoming at Ohio State, they really mean homecoming, right? Uh, Costco, some Costco stores now sell coffins right in the stores for $3,999. You can wheel one right out in your shopping cart. Death has become big business. And I don't think there's ever been a generation of people that has spent more money on death, but yet less time thinking about what happens after death. Very consumed with going out in style, but not really thinking about what's going to happen afterwards. Now, it hasn't always been this way. Generations of parents taught their kids to pray a little prayer before they went to bed. You may have prayed it before you went to bed. In fact, if you know it, you can say it along with me. Ready? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What a cheery way to send your kids off to bed. <laughs> right? Did you know there's actually a second verse to that prayer? It goes like this. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span. And cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. <laughs> Night, honey, pleasant dreams. <laughs> Why did parents teach that to their kids, though? 
What, what was the point of that prayer where they were simply trying to get their kids to understand that, look, death is real. Death is going to come for all of us. And we've got to be thinking about what happens to us at the moment of death. And what they were teaching the kids in prayer there is that, look, there's more to life than just being here and then dying and then you become worm food. No, there's an eternal life. There's more to it. You can live forever with your God. And so that's what parents were trying to teach is that death is not the end. But you know, not everybody believes that. Not everybody thinks that way. How many of you have ever heard the name Mel Blanc before? Does that name sound familiar to anybody? Mel Blanc? Mel Blanc was the guy that came up with Looney Tunes. And he invented all the characters. He was the voices for many of the beloved characters that you guys know, that you grew up with. And remember at the end of every Looney Tunes car- uh, cartoon or end of the movies, Bug- or uh, not Bugs Bunny, uh, Porky Pig would come out and he'd say, bleep, 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 that's all, folks. Well, guess what happened a couple years ago when Mel Blanc died? What do you think his family had put on his tombstone? That's all, folks. And so that's the big question we have to wrestle with here this morning on this Easter Sunday, 2015. Which is true, the songs that we sang earlier, that death where is your sting, that there's a resurrected king that we can live forever, is that the truth? Or what they put on Mel Blanc's tombstone? That's all, folks. To help us to sort of think through this, I want to take a look at a a chapter in the Bible that I think will sort of summarize all this for us. So if you've got a Bible you want to follow along, it's John chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 3. Again, John chapter 11, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. There in your program today is all the scriptures we'll be looking at today. They'll also be up on the screen behind us. If you have the uh, smartphone with you, you can go to uh, Uversion and download the Bible app there. And you can follow along as well. Before we actually get into the scripture, let me give you a little bit of context in what we're going to look at today. This story is about life and then death and then life again. Life, death, and life again. And it involves some siblings. There's a guy by the name of Lazarus, and then he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, they lived in a town called Bethany, which was right outside the, uh, the town of Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital city of Israel. So it was like a little suburb type of town. And they lived there. And any time Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he would actually stay there in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They had become very, very close friends. However, Jesus hadn't been there for quite a while. And here's the reason why. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the religious leaders tried to kill Jesus. So being in Bethany, being in Jerusalem, it's a very, very dangerous place for Jesus to be. And so he hasn't been there for a while. But then all of a sudden one day, Lazarus wakes up and he has a fever. Or he's spitting up some blood or he's got a lump or something. We're not quite sure exactly what was going on. But he's definitely sick to the point that he's so sick that he's lying there in his home on his deathbed, and I'm sure they called in whatever type of medical teams that they had in that day and time, and they they brought the doctor in, and the doctor said, bad news. You literally just have hours to live. Mary and Martha, they're they're despondent. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then they have an idea. Their only hope is Jesus. And so they send some of their servants off to get him, and that's where we'll pick up the story then. John chapter 11, verse 3. So they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. You see, they've seen Jesus heal the blind. 
heal the deaf, help the lame to walk. They've, they've seen Jesus make lepers completely whole. And they're like, surely if he would do that for complete strangers, he's going to do this for Lazarus, his best friend. He'll be here in an instant. But Jesus does something quite weird, quite strange. In verses 5 and 6 it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've gotten those dreaded phone calls saying that one of my loved ones is sick and they're in the hospital, they're on their deathbed, I drop everything in that moment. I jump in the car. I don't care about traffic laws. I mean, I'm getting to the hospital as soon as possible. I drop everything. I think that's just human nature, human reaction. That when you hear somebody that you love is sick and they're about to die, you want to be there by their side. But yet, Scripture says here that Jesus decided to stay behind for two more days. Now, he had his reasons, but Mary and Martha, of course, don't know that. Finally, then, in verse 7, he, he says to his disciples that, look, let's go ahead, let's go down to Judea. We've, we've got some work to do. And the disciples remind him, they're like, wait a second, this isn't a, this isn't a safe place for you. In fact, here's what it says in, in verse 8. Teacher, they said, the people there want to stone you to death. Why do you want to go back? Jesus takes the next couple of verses where he explains to them that, look, I'm needed there for a variety of reasons. And I love this. Verse 16. Then Thomas said, come on, we might as well die with him. <laughs> he's not Mr. Optimist, is he? I mean, he, he's not going to get paid as a motivational speaker. Like, all right, we might as well just go die with them. So there they all head down to Jerusalem, to Bethany. And by the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. When he gets there, Mary and Martha, they're surrounded by friends, and they're all in deep mourning. Martha's the first one to spot Jesus. And in verse 21, she says this, Lord, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. What a heartbreaking statement that is. If only you would have been here. You know, I have a feeling that all of us have some if-onlys when it comes to people that have died. Right? You, you have some, some people that are close to you that have died and, and you're wishing, if only I hadn't said those words. If only I would have made wiser choices. If only I had encouraged them to get to the doctor sooner. If only I had told them that I loved them. If only I had asked for their forgiveness. Sometimes our if-onlys feel like the end, but they're not because there's somebody, his name is Jesus, who we can bring all of our if-onlys to. See, that's not the end of the story because anytime Jesus is involved, the end hasn't come. There's still more. Martha, in this case, has got to be thinking, if only I had gone to him in person. Remember, she and Martha had sent off their servants to go get Jesus. And she's like, eh, if only I had gone, he, he may have realized the, the gravity of the situation, and, and he would have come. I, I would have been able to get through to him that, look, this isn't just like he's got a minor little cough here. No, this, this is serious. Jesus, you have to come right away because you're the only hope that he's going to live. If only... If only, 
if only. Jesus says to her, look, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. He, in the future, there's the, the hope of the resurrection. Then Jesus makes a very, very profound statement. He says this in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection. I am the one who raises the dead to life. Everyone who has faith in me will live even if they die. And everyone who lives because of faith in me will never really die. Then he asks her, do you believe this? Now let me pause here for a second because it would be very easy to just to sort of skim over these verses and, and not go back and, and look at what a staggering statement Jesus is making here. Uh, imagine it this way. Imagine you have a loved one and they're on their deathbed and you think, you know what, maybe we should call a pastor to come and pray because we've been praying and nothing's happened. Maybe their prayer will get through a little bit better than what my prayer is getting through. And so let's say that, that you call me to, to come to your loved one's deathbed. And I say, sure, I, I can come and pray for him. But then I never show up. And your loved one passes away. Later on, you find out that the reason I didn't come is I was just sort of hanging out at Walmart. You know, a couple days I could have been there, but I was just hanging out at Walmart. Just hanging out. Nothing better to do. Just hanging out. You'd be furious at me. You'd be like, if only you would have come, maybe God would have heard your prayer. Maybe my loved one wouldn't have died. And then imagine how I looked at you and I said this. Don't worry. I'm the resurrection. At any moment, I can go to your loved one, just lay hands on him and raise him right from the dead. Do you believe me? Not only would you say that you don't believe me, but you'd probably call the men in the white coats to come and take me away. Because who in their right mind is going to make a claim like that? That I am the resurrection. I can overcome death. Death has no power over me. Nobody's going to make that claim. Because basically if you're making that claim, you're saying that you're God. No other religious leader throughout all of human history made that claim. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius. Nobody ever made the claim except for Jesus that I am the resurrection. I have the power over death. Again, he's making a statement that I am God. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good moral man. Jesus over and over and over throughout Scripture makes these claims that I am God. I came to this earth and I put on a human suit, basically. I'm one of you, but I'm here to change your life. So there's Jesus, and he says to Martha, I'm the resurrection. Do you believe this? Martha's response is found in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She believes it. My question this morning is, how about you? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the one who has come to save the world, the one who has come to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life forever? Do you believe it? 
I mean, there's a lot that is riding here on your response. In fact, your eternal destiny hinges on your response. Do you believe that he is the resurrection? That he is the life? This is not to be taken lightly. And so if you're here today, maybe you're coming into church for the first time or in the church, you know, and it hasn't been, you know, it's been a long time since you've been in the church and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing and Christianity and the Bible and everything. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is such an important question. Do you believe Jesus or not? That you need to investigate this for yourself. Start reading the Bible. Start praying and saying, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Show me the, the truth of, is this really the word of God or not? And we hope that you'll continue to come here to Exponential and that you'll find this a safe place to sort of investigate those claims. But in any case, Jesus finds Martha and she's in deep sorrow and he has this conversation with her. And then he spots Mary. In verse 33 it says this, Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Now, this word weeping here, it's a pretty bad translation. Because this isn't like a polite little sniffling. This particular Greek word, it's really should have been translated as wailing. In fact, the same Greek word is the same word that is used when it describes a horse snorting. Okay, so this is like, they're just like letting it all out. They're, they're, they're crying. They're, they're wailing. And he, he sees this, this scene and, and, and Mary, who he loves here, and he's like deeply moved in his spirit. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is moved. And he sees the tomb. And then we have this incredible, incredible verse of Scripture. Verse 35, it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. It says this, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, in case you don't know how this story is about to end, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it says here, Jesus wept. Why would he weep if he knows that he's about to raise his friend from the dead? What well, has nothing to do with Lazarus. It has everything to do with the scene that he sees around. That people were in this deep mourning. Why? Because death is in the world. And why is death in the world? Because of sin. And so Jesus weeps because he, he's mad at Satan for bringing sin and, and bringing death into our existence. Just a couple days later, Jesus is going to stand and overlook the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to weep again. And the, the type of weeping that is described here is a different Greek word. The, what Jesus is doing, it's just like tears are streaming down his face. He's deeply moved in his spirit. And it's the same thing that happens when he overlooks the city of Jerusalem. He starts to weep. Why? Because he recognizes that there's so many thousands of people there in that city that God longs to embrace and, and wants to bring into his kingdom. But yet they're about to reject him. And God still weeps for our world today. Why? Because there's still sin. There's still sickness. There's still death. It breaks the heart of God and it breaks his heart even more so 
that we reject him. He says, look, I, I came to deliver you from all that. I came to free you from all that. But yet you keep pushing me away and pushing me away and pushing me away. And it breaks the heart of God. See, many people are racing through this life. They're heading towards eternity. And they've never once stopped to truly consider what's going to happen to me after I die. Is there more to life than just this? Jesus faces the tomb. And in verses, or in verse 39, we read this. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Now, this is actually one where I like the old King James Version. She says, surely by now he stinketh. <laughs> In case you don't know Martha from the Bible, there's a couple other stories about her. She was a very meticulous woman like a very proper hostess, you know, prim and proper. In fact, her last name may have been Stuart, okay? I mean, she, that's just sort of how she was. And so she's, like, really concerned with what's going to happen. I mean, you break the seal on that tomb, you roll that stone away, and woo, man. It, he's been dead for four days. Now, let me tell you why it's important that John brings up in the Scripture that it's been four days. The Jews had this belief. It wasn't a, a real belief. Uh, belief i mean it was a real belief for them but it wasn't something that that god had given them but they had this belief that they thought that the spirit of a dead person would hang around the body for a couple days in the hopes that the spirit could get back into the body and and come back to life and so this is one of the reasons why in jewish culture and jewish custom as soon as somebody would die they would right away like wrap them up in, in spices and various things and get them into a tomb. I mean, the, the funeral would be the exact same day that somebody would die. Why? Because, again, they believed that the spirit was hanging around and they wanted to preserve the body as best they could. And so when John says here that he's been dead for four days, what he's communicating is he's really dead. By this point, you know, the, the body had started to decompose far enough that the spirit wasn't coming back into the body. He's dead. He's gone. There's absolutely no hope for him. But there was hope for him. Because look at verses 40 and 41. It says, Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And so they rolled the stone aside. I want you to imagine the drama of this moment. Remember, this crowd is there and they're weeping, like horse-snorting weeping. It's loud. It's just this chaotic scene. And now there's Jesus saying, roll the stone aside. Imagine everything got still. Everything got quiet. They wanted to see what was going to happen. And in the second part of verse 41, Jesus continues on. He says, Father, thank you that you have answered my prayer. Now, the crowd's got to be scratching their head going, uh, what prayer? We didn't hear you pray a prayer, and you're already thanking him for something that he's done. What in the world are you talking about here, Jesus? How do you know your prayer got answered? Well, two things. Number one, Jesus knew his prayer was answered because when they rolled the stone away, there wasn't the stench of death. 
But number two, here's the thing. What do you think Jesus was doing during those couple days when Mary and Martha had said, come right away, Lazarus is sick. Do you think he was hanging out at Walmart? No. What was he doing? He was praying. You know what he was praying? Father, I want them to see something that they've never seen before. You see, up to that point, people had seen him. The crowds had seen him heal the sick. They had already seen that miracle. He's like, I'm going to let Lazarus die. Because now I want them to see that I have the power over death. I'm going to raise him back to life. And so the stone is rolled away and he says, Father, thank you that you have answered my prayer. This prayer that he had been praying for days and days and days and days. That Father, through the power of your spirit, raise him back to life. Verse 43. He says, Lazarus, come out. Here's the amazing thing. He did. A dead man came walking out of the tomb alive. Can you imagine the party they had that night? As loud as they were mourning, imagine how loud they were now. Here's what's interesting. John doesn't record that. You know why? Because this is not the ultimate resurrection story. See, when John walked out of the tomb, he was still mortal. He was going to have to die again sometime. In fact, Lazarus, or did I say John? Uh, okay, I meant Lazarus. Lazarus was going, to have to, was going to have to die again. He was still mortal. We read about it actually in the very next chapter, John 12, verses uh, 10 to 11. It says, The chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus because he was the reason that many of the people were turning from them and putting their faith in Jesus. So here we are just a chapter later, and he's getting ready to die again. He's got to be thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> this just happened. I just got back here. He's probably calling like Jake from State Farm going, hey, does my life insurance policy cover dying twice? I mean, does, does Mary and Martha, they get like a second benefit out of this? Or what, what's the deal? Again, the point I'm trying to make to you is this. This is not the ultimate resurrection story. But Jesus, he is. He is the ultimate resurrection story because when Jesus came out of the tomb, death was finished with him. He was not subjected to it any longer. He had mastered life while he lived and now he had mastered death in his death. And that's good news for you and I because Jesus is God and because God did not deserve to die, he rose again from the dead. And the reason that he decided to die was because he loves you and he loves me and he wanted our sins to be forgiven. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus hangs on the cross, he dies so that you could have life. So that when you physically die, it doesn't mean you have to spiritually die. That's the good news that we're here to celebrate today. That Jesus lived and he died and then he lived again. See, he lived the perfect and sinless life that you could never live, and he died for the life that you are living. You can never be perfect, but he was. And he said, I will be your perfection for you. 
I will be your righteousness, which righteousness just means to live right. I will live right for you because you can't. Because let's face it, we've all sinned, haven't we? I don't think there's anybody here today that's going to say, I've never messed up. I've been perfect every moment of every day, of every year of my life. I know that's not true of me. And it's not true of you either. And so again, the question is, what are you going to do about that sinfulness? Are you going to try to, to pay for that on your own? Are you going to try to say to God, look how good I've been? I should make it into heaven because I've been perfect? No, you can't do it that way. The only way you can do it is through the shed blood that Jesus had there for you on the cross. And again, this means that when death comes for you, and it comes for me, and it comes for anybody that's put their faith in him, death is not the end. A couple years ago, I preached my grandmother's funeral. And this was just two weeks after my wife Lisa and I had moved from Maryland into Pennsylvania. And I remember saying this at her funeral. Look, when Lisa and I moved from Maryland to Pennsylvania, that didn't mean that we ceased to exist. It just meant that we had a change of address. And the exact same thing is true for my grandmother. That what happened with her was she didn't cease to exist at death. She just moved to a new address. All of us one day are going to move to a new address. And the Bible makes it very, very clear that it's going to be in one of two places. Either your new address is going to be eternally present with God forever in a very real place called heaven, or eternally separated from God in a very real place called hell. And we all have the choice to make which one of those addresses we want to end up at. But again, you can't get to heaven on your own. It's only through your faith that Jesus is the resurrection. You need to confess your sins to him. And the Bible says that if you'll do that, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness or your unright living. God wants you to spend eternity with him, but only he makes it possible. So I begin to wrap up. As you came in today, you should have gotten a chess piece. Did everybody get one? Some of you that maybe came in a little bit later, you didn't get one. It, did, is there anybody here that didn't get one here this morning? That, all right. A uh, couple of people. If some families could real quick, just uh, like Brian and Terry, if you both got one, can you get back here? If there's anybody up here, uh, Bill, just temporarily, if you can hand one off. I just want to make sure at least every family has one. So if your whole family is all holding one, if you can just look around for a hand real quick. Uh, we, need, we need some back here real quick if there's anybody. Okay. Anybody else? Can uh, Carol get one here? Somebody real quick. Bill, there's one up there if you can get it. Are we good? Behind you, Brian. There you go. All right, I just want to make sure everybody has this, and this will make sense in a, in a second why. There's a, a, a story, it's a true story, of uh, two guys that are in an art museum. And there's a, a painting that they're looking at, and... It's a picture of a chessboard, and you can see all the, the pieces there on the board where they're all located. 
And there's two sort of characters in this particular thing. They've been playing a match against one another. And one character is obviously the devil, and the other character is a man. And the painting is titled Checkmate. And the devil has a big smile on his face. And the man has his head bowed low in shame and in defeat. It's obvious that Satan has defeated this man. He's got him in checkmate. And so these two guys are standing there looking at it. Now, one of the guys is the world champion, grandmaster of chess, Gary Kasparov. And so he's there with his friend, and his friend was done looking at the painting, so his friend goes on and starts looking at some other things. But since Kasparov is like a world champion, he's standing there just intrigued by the thing. And eventually he excitedly calls to his friend, come over here, come over here, come over here. And his friend's like, what in the world is going on? He's like, well, I was standing here and, you know, continuing to examine the painting. And he's like, we have to find the artist because either he needs to change the painting or change the title. His friend's like, what in the world are you talking about? He's like, well, I looked at all the pieces there. And either he needs to change the painting or he needs to change the title because I recognize that the king has one more move. Now, folks, on an Easter Sunday morning, especially those of you that call yourselves followers of Jesus, that should cause you to clap and shout and cheer and get louder than a horse snort because the good news of Easter is the king still has one more move. The king has always had one more move. He'll always have one more move. Scripture tells a story about a little boy named David. He's going to go fight a mighty giant called Goliath. And so the army, they decide to put King Saul's armor on him. But King Saul's a 52 long, David's a 36 short. I mean, it's just awkward. It's not working. He can barely even lift up the sword. It looks hopeless. It looks like he's in checkmate. But the king still had one more move. There's a young man by the name of Daniel in the Bible He's praying all the time to the Lord as God. And the the people in his land say, you can't pray to your God any longer. But he keeps praying to God and he keeps praying to God. And they said, if you keep doing this, we're going to kill you. But he keeps praying to God and he keeps praying to God. Finally, they throw him into a den of lions. The lions are very hungry. It looks like the game is over. It looks like checkmate. But the king still had one more move. A man by the name of Moses convinces an entire nation of slaves to escape the slavery that they are in in Egypt and go out and start their own land. Pharaoh, though, he isn't happy about this. He's the leader of Egypt. And so he takes his army and he starts chasing after them. And so there's the Israelites. They're running away and they're running away. But then they come up against the Red Sea. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got the greatest army in the history of the earth on the behind them. They're surrounded. It looks like checkmate, but the king still had one more move. When Jesus went down to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, he knew that he was signing his very own death warrant. He knew that it was going to cause himself to die. You see, a week later, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is arrested, he's tried, He is beaten, he is mocked, he is spit upon, he is whipped. A crown of thorns is thrust on his head and then he is nailed to a cross. He's then buried in a tomb. Satan and the world said, you know what? 
That's it. That's all, folks. Checkmate. But, what happened? The king still had one more move. Death could not hold him down. The grave was conquered. The sting of death was defeated. Jesus rose again from the dead. That's the good news of Easter. That no matter what situation you find yourself in, the king still has one more move. Some of you are here today and you're going through some tough things. Maybe it's stress at work. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you have a son or a daughter that you're estranged from. Maybe you have some friendships that you're struggling with. Maybe you've done some things or said some things that you think there's no possible way God could ever forgive me. And what Satan wants you to believe in your life, that it's, that's it, game over, checkmate. But Jesus is saying to you today this, the king still has one more move. And so what I want you to do is with that piece that you got today, that chess piece, each of you got a king, I want you to take it and put it somewhere prominently in your home. Maybe on your dresser, it may be on your mantle by your fireplace, could be on your desk at work, maybe by your bathroom mirror where you get ready in the morning. Put it somewhere that your entire family is going to be able to see it. And every time you feel defeated, I want you to look at that and be reminded of today's message that no matter how defeated I feel, the king still has one more move. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, Jesus that you came and lived the perfect life that we could never live, and you died on the cross for our sins. You came so that we may be set free. You still had one more move, and that was to redeem your people. So with every head bowed, every eye closed here this morning, if you have never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you have never asked him to be the leader of your life, you've never asked him to, to come in and take control, and you want to know for certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you were to die today, that your new change of address would be to heaven instead of to hell. If that's true of you, again, every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just raise your hand up here this morning? I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I just want to know that you're saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I believe that you're, yes, sir, right here. I see your hand. You can put it down right here to my uh, right. Thank you. Yes, sir, back there. Thank you. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I believe that you are the resurrection. I believe that you are the life. I believe that in the same way that you brought Lazarus out and you gave him a brand new life, you want to give me a brand new life. Anybody else here this morning? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be the leader of my life. I want to know that I'm going to have eternal life with you. Real quickly, anybody else? Anybody else? Yes, sir, back there. I uh, see it. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm going to ask everyone to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat it out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth, living a perfect and sinless life, dying on the cross so that my sins might be forgiven. I admit I haven't been perfect. I need your forgiveness and I need your leadership that only your spirit 
can give me. So right now, I turn from my sins. I turn towards you, towards your word. I give my life completely to you. And I'm going to be obedient to the voice of your spirit for all the days of my life. Father, we thank you for those that have made a decision to follow you today for the first time. And I pray that the same thing that happened for me 20-some years ago now would happen for them, that they would realize that the old them has died and that there's now a new them, one that is raised to life by the power of your Spirit and that death will still happen for them physically. But now they have the assurance that death has been overcome when it comes to spiritually. Lord, thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for doing that for so many people here this morning. I just pray that you continue to help all of us to grow in that grace that you've so given to us each and every day. Now, for everybody else here this morning with every head bowed, every eye still closed, you're saying, you know what, Gilbert, there's some things I'm going through right now in my life, maybe relationally, it may be financially, it could be something that Satan just keeps telling me over and over and over again that I'm defeated in this area. But Gilbert, would you, would you help me this, today by praying for me that I would always recognize that the king has one more move? That's true of you today. Would you raise your hand up here so I can see it? That you want me to pray that the king would always have one more move in your life. You have lots of hands going up this morning. You can put them down. Father, I thank you. I thank you that so many people have have embraced this message today that you have overcome not just death, but you've overcome sin. You've overcome all the concerns and the cares of the world that we have. And that's the good news of your resurrection that we celebrate here on this Easter Sunday. That not only have you come to give us eternal life, but you came to give us an abundant life right here and right now. And so help us to walk in that. Help us to always be reminded, no matter what, that the King still has one more move. Jesus, thank you so much for being that risen and conquering king. And it's in your precious name that we pray all these things. Amen. Hey, can we have those that made a decision to follow Jesus Day for the first time? Big hand. Most important decision they'll ever make in their lives. Congratulations. Congratulations. But that's not it. That's just like I always say it this way. When you get married and you say, I do, that doesn't mean you're done. That's just the first step. And so we want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer this morning, to do one of two things. Either step out at the lobby, at the booths out there, and we've got a little package of information that will help you to start taking some next steps. Or on your connection card there in your program, there is a box there that you can check off that says, Today I pray and ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins, to be the leader of my life. And if you'll do that, I will send you an email this week that has a bunch of next steps that you can take. It's a, a packet, I think it's like about 13, 14 pages long, and it'll just help you know what to do now that you become a follower of Jesus. So again, congratulations to you here this morning.